there, folks. My name is Emily, and you are listening to E Pluribus Unum, a podcast about culture, about life, about how to be a better person, about what the Bible tells us about how to live, a little bit about politics. Sometimes we talk about the random national holidays, you know, all sorts of important things. By the way, today is National Chocolate Chip Cookie Day, so feel free to eat one or multiple chocolate chip cookies while listening to the podcast. And I recommend with milk. I also recommend chewy chocolate chip cookies. I don't know what hard and crunchy cookies are about. I'm not about that life. Soft, chewy, gooey cookies, that's the way to go. Crunchy cookies, Oreos can be crunchy and every other cookie should be soft. Thus saith Emily. Anyway, has anyone ever noticed that socialists are secretly the most pro-American people. It's true. And as you know, if you've listened to this podcast before, I really don't like to call out individual groups one way or the other, even though, yes, I am coming at you from a conservative perspective that it's really not my goal to call out one group and say, that group's stupid, that group's right, that group's evil, whatever. That's not what this podcast is about. But if we're going to be talking about the most pro American patriotic chauvinism related group, it's socialists. And I know this sounds mind boggling, but think about it. This is how the conversation about socialism goes in broad strokes. A socialist says, we need socialism in America. And Bob says, but socialism has never worked in any other country. Look at Venezuela, look at Cuba. And a socialist says, okay, fine, but that wasn't real socialism. We're going to do it right. We're going to do it right in the U.S.? How much more American exceptionalism, American chauvinism, America is the best can you get than thinking that an ideology which has failed hundreds of millions of people, hasn't worked anywhere, is going to work here? We're going to do it better. Somehow we as Americans have the magical formula. It's actually so arrogant. And I know that no one who makes that argument is thinking that way. But that is the belief that they must subconsciously have to think that somehow we are going to get right what no one else has been able to get right. Those of us who don't want socialism, because we know that socialism not only doesn't work, but is inherently an immoral idea, don't think that it could work even here even though we actually do love this country, but we recognize that we're not perfect and there are flaws. People who, again, I'm going to paint in broad strokes, but broadly speaking, let's say like conservatives and libertarians are sort of like kids who have a very healthy relationship with their parents. They recognize that their parents are flawed and imperfect, but they still look up to and cherish and revere and respect their parents. Socialists are sort of like people with daddy issues. They say that they hate everything, about their dad, about the U.S., but they also keep on secretly searching for and seeking that father figure in everyone that they date. That socialist, because they say they hate the country, but then they also secretly think that we're the best and somehow we're going to be able to do socialism better. And the rest of us are like, socialism is not going to work here. It doesn't work anywhere. If you're talking about European countries where it works, and I'm doing air quotes, you can't see it because it's a podcast and you're talking about like Denmark or something like that. They're not socialists. They're welfare states. It's a different story. Or Sweden. 
And everywhere else where there's actual socialism, it becomes communism and people die. So get out of here with your socialism. But anyway, now just a little thought that blipped in my head and I thought I'd share it with you lovely people. Also, I like to start things out lighthearted because there's enough doom and gloom people out there and I don't want to be one of those people in your life. I want to be a bright little ray of sunshine in your life. I also want to be a bright little ray of sunshine in my own life. I like to sleep. I don't like stress. No one likes it. In other news that I wouldn't have anticipated or good thoughts coming from an unexpected source, there is actually a very popular young adult novel on the shelves that is pro-gun. It's also pro-small government and decentralized government. The pro-gun thing is the topic that really surprised me. I'm talking about Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes by Susan Ann Collins, which is the Hunger Games prequel. The Hunger Games is a huge trilogy. I read it in high school, so it's been a little bit. And also there were movies. The Hunger Games is set in a dystopia where there was this huge rebellion slash war against the capital and the capital to punish all the people who rebelled, the other districts who rebelled, force children from the districts to fight to the death once a year. So, you know, all sunshine and roses in that book. That's what launched Jennifer Lawrence to fame. She played Katniss Everdeen. They're pretty good books. I don't think I saw the movies, so I can't comment. And actually, the pro-gun message is in those books, too, but I don't think I thought about it at the time. But I'm much more pro-gun, or at least aware of guns, now than I was in high school. So in the book, there's this huge centralized power, the capital, and then there are 12 districts. And the capital is the seat of power. There's also a huge division in class. The capital, people have money, they have clothing, they have too much food. They have so much food that it's the popular style to gorge oneself, puke, and then to eat more, just to indicate how much food you have, whereas in the districts, people starve. They have spotty electricity and running water, and of course, they don't have weapons. They're not allowed to have guns. Even bows and arrows are not allowed, which is one of the reasons that Katniss has an edge in the Hunger Games because she secretly has a bow and arrow, so she's hunting, which she's also not allowed to do. So when she gets into the Hunger Games arena, she already has some familiarity with a weapon. But this book clearly points out that when the government has the power, they have their peacekeepers, which is their military that they have in the districts to keep people in line, they have all the power and they actively confiscate firepower. They confiscate guns and other weapons from the regular people to keep them in line. I don't know if Suzanne Collins is pro-gun. She very well may be anti-gun. But the message of guns being necessary to a free society is so clear. The people aren't free because they don't have the power to protect themselves. And I'm not talking about the power to protect yourself from a burglar. Yes, guns for home defense are important. Guns for defense If you're a woman who works in a dangerous neighborhood, or not dangerous neighborhood, but you're a woman and you want to feel safe, or any other location, but guns are not about protecting ourselves. The right to bear arms 
in the Second Amendment is not about the right to protect ourselves from other people. I think actually the idea that we're allowed to defend ourselves against an individual who would want to do us harm is so understood. I don't think the founders needed an amendment for that. I don't think they needed to tell us if you're in a grocery store and someone's coming at you with a gun, defend yourself. We didn't need to be told that. That's like the biggest duh in the world. Oh yeah, if someone's going to try to attack me, no, I'm going to just let them hit me. No, obviously you're going to defend yourself. The second amendment isn't about defending yourself against someone, an individual who's going to do your harm. Do who's going to do you harm. The Second Amendment is about protecting ourselves from the government, from a centralized power. It's the only thing we have. Yes, we can vote, but what if we have a corrupt government that doesn't listen to our votes? And that was not a commentary on the election, by the way. I'm not getting into that. That was just a general statement. We have our voice, but if our voice isn't listened to, the only thing that we have ultimately is arms. And we know this because people riot on that very argument. They say our voices weren't listened to for the past 50 years when we called for civil rights and now we're rioting. Their facts are wrong. The riots were still immoral for the many reasons that have been mentioned before, but primarily because people rioted in the streets, in people's neighborhoods, in pe uh, people's businesses. It wasn't actively against the government where the seat of power was, but the ideology that when your voice is not being listened to, force is the only thing left to you is, it's not really incorrect. We tell kids if someone's bothering them not to hit and to use their words, but ultimately if they're really, really getting bullied, what does every dad in a TV show tell their kid to do? Hit him back. Because at some point that's all that people listen to. And if the government is coming to take your house or to take your child or to conscript you into the military against your will, the only thing you have left is force. But if the government declaws us, takes away our guns, then we have nothing to defend ourselves. And the proof of this is how Joe Biden, and there was another politician who did it, but it was a couple of years ago, I don't remember, when talking about the Second Amendment, said, well, what good are guns when we have F-15s, nuclear bombs, and tanks, like, that's literally the whole point. What you're saying is you have more force than us, and therefore you can tell us what to do. That's why we need force. Actually, what they're doing is making the argument that we need more guns and better guns so that they, they being the government, can't just come and steamroll through and tell us what to do. And all that from a young adult novel, which also talks about how dangerous having centralized power is and too much control over people's lives and how dangerous that is. It's, it's uh, actually a pretty good book, but pro-gun message in a young adult novel, that is a rare find, my friends. And if you don't read young adult novels, I'm sure you're familiar with the zeitgeist of young adults these days. Guns, Second Amendment, not the most popular. So the fact that that message is in a book, whether people pick up on it or not, because frankly, so many dystopian young adult novels scream about the dangers of a centralized, powerful government, and yet young people still want more government. So I'm not saying this message is getting through to anyone, but it's there and it's very interesting. And I would love to know uh, Suzanne Collins' thoughts on the Second Amendment. So speaking of the dangers of a centralized government, I went to Freedom Fest a couple weeks ago, which is a libertarian 
conference. There are a ton of speakers and exhibitor booths and events, and it's all libertarians. I am mostly conservative. On some issues, I'm libertarian. We all know how I feel about labels. Anyway, I went, and it was very interesting. There were great speakers. I heard Dr. Drew speak, Larry Elder, Ayan Hersiali, Dave Rubin, Maj Touré, who I think is the founder of a group called Black Guns Matter. Very interesting, the idea that all gun control is inherently racist. Antonia Okafor, who works for Gun Owners of America, she also had some very interesting thoughts on guns and taking them out of the, and how gun control takes them out of the hands of the people who need them most. So there were a ton of interesting speakers, interesting breakout sessions, exhibitors, Stossel in the Classroom, PragerU, the Tuttle Twins, which are kids' books that teach kids about freedom and liberty, which is fantastic. There are all sorts of creative types in the liberty space, as they call it. Hollywood is still a behemoth, but there are people actually doing really good work in making entertainment and media that has good values. So if you want it and you look for it, you can find it. So it's very interesting. And as I said, I, I really consider myself, if I have to use a label, more conservative than libertarian, but I, I'm also pretty libertarian on a lot of things, very live and let live on most things. I know people don't think that because I'm religious, so they think that obviously I want to tell them how to live their life. But the truth is I don't. Do I have ideas and thoughts about what's moral and what's right and what God wants? Yes. Am I going to tell you it? I mean, obviously I have a podcast. I'm going to tell people about it. But am I going to force you? Ah, you see, no, that I'm not going to do. Ultimately, if you're not hurting other people, I'm going to let you do you. I might judge you. I might think what you're doing is wrong. But guess what? That's just life. You can't make me think that what you're doing is right. But I'm not going to force you and you're not going to force me. Live and let live. There was actually a booth for a, a specific group. Their movement is called the Live and Let Live movement. Again, as a religious person, is that how I think the world should work? No, I think I have an obligation to teach morality. But I don't think I have an obligation to enforce morality. And if everyone embraced live and let live, I'd be super happy. I'd be okay. Even if that meant people were doing things that, that the Bible has issues with. Like, I'm not talking about things like murder. Obviously, that is not living and let live because you are hurting other people. But if people of the same sex are getting married, do I think it's what the Bible wants? No, pretty expressly no. But if ultimately they're not hurting people and they're doing good in the world, do I care? Eh, not really. But being at this Freedom Fest did bring up an idea or a question. Is there such a thing as too much freedom? It was so amazing to be around these libertarians. Very few people were wearing masks. Everyone was engaging in a free exchange of ideas. There was a lot of laughter. I didn't see people yelling at each other. By the way, I'm sure people were carrying and there was no mass shootout, which just proves that guns don't kill people. And in fact, having guns around probably makes it less likely because someone who would do it would think twice because they might get shot themselves. Anyway, it was a lot of fun. But listening to a lot of their speakers, their focus was we need freedom, we need freedom, we need more freedom. So it brings up the question, can you have even too much freedom? Is too much freedom problematic? Because they want freedom when it comes to everything, right? Not just free enterprise and school choice and 
freedom from government incursion, you know, no eminent domain and things like that, all of which, yes, freedom from those things, absolutely. Freedom to choose whether or not to wear a mask, freedom to choose whether or not to keep your business open during a pandemic, freedom to choose whether or not to wear a helmet if you ride a motorcycle, all those freedoms, yes. But there are also a few issues in which they want freedom, and I, I'm torn, honestly torn. The three that I'm thinking of in particular, because they came up a lot, is cannabis, weed, saying cannabis makes it sound like a more intelligent discussion, weed sounds like I'm back in a college dorm room, decriminalizing prostitution, and no foreign wars. I guess the no foreign wars thing, libertarians have a problem with the military because that's still government and it's too big. I guess maybe this is where I split with libertarians as a conservative because I don't think there should be no government. I do think there should be government. Government has a purpose and national defense is one of those purposes. Sometimes the best defense is a good offense, right? The best offense is a good defense. Anyway, the point is that's one of the things I actually think government should do. And I know everyone loves to point to George Washington's farewell address in which he said that the U.S. should be careful about foreign entanglements and treaties. And while he was probably 100% correct, two things. First of all, 2021 is not 1792. I mean, we just live in different worlds. To not interact in the same way with different countries is not feasible. And secondly, we're already there. You know, you could have this argument a little bit over 100 years ago before World War I and say, are we going to get entangled with another country? But we're already there. So to now just say, uh, peace, guys, we're just going to step back. You can't. We're already in the thick of it. So you can't just pull back. I'm not saying we shouldn't pull back and that there is not a way to do it, but to just in one fell swoop say, all right, we're cutting ties. See you later. That's not going to work. Anyway, so that's foreign wars. Decriminalizing prostitution, that's something I'm really on the fence about. On the one hand, should adults be able to do what they want with their bodies? And if they want to have sex with someone else, is it my business? No. And is it better that it's decriminalized so that if a woman or man finds her or himself in the position where prostitution is the only thing that she can do to make money, isn't it better that she should be allowed to do it? That she's not going to jail for something when clearly her life is already in a pretty dire place? And that she can make money and that she doesn't have to do it in back alleys where it's dangerous and maybe there's a pimp involved and, you know, she can actually have a thriving business. I obviously think that's much better. But what kind of country would we live in where we say prostitution is okay when sex is not supposed to be transactional? Sex is supposed to be transcendental. Sex is how we as humans can come closest to God. We create life in the process of sex. And so I am, as a religious person, I'm really torn on it. Ultimately, if it came to a vote between two candidates and they agreed on everything else and one agreed on decriminalizing prostitution and one didn't want to, I'd probably go with the one who wanted to decriminalize, but it also wouldn't be a major issue for me. So if I agreed with one candidate on everything and there was a, another candidate and, that, and I didn't agree with anything but decriminalizing prostitution, it just it's not a big enough issue for me. But there are definitely good arguments to be made for if not legalizing it, decriminalizing it, which is very different. Decriminalizing, as they explained, there were multiple speakers on this, just means that we're not throwing people in jail if they're prostitutes or if they're buying from prostitutes, which actually makes a lot of sense. There are enough people in jail. We spend a lot of money on it and, you know, maybe a fine or something or tell them, hey, 
don't do it on the street or across the street from a school. Go somewhere else. But do we really need to throw people in jail because they're having sex for money? That does seem a little bit extreme. And then cannabis is is the interesting one. Well, they're all three interesting, but cannabis really gets me because people make such a big deal out of it. And if you want to smoke weed, smoke weed. If you want to have pop brownies, have pop brownies, fine. If that's what you want your life to be. Same thing as prostitution. Should it be decriminalized? Probably. But really, is that the issue that's super important to you? Weed? I know the people, we all know people that weed is their life. They're kind of pathetic. You know, they're kind of sad. They're they're stuck perpetually in their 20s. And I'm not saying people who smoke weed can't be productive, but I also know plenty of people who used to smoke weed and talked about how unproductive and how awful their lives were. And I see my friends who are still on weed on a regular basis and how they're just their lives are just like they're just losers. And they're very nice people. I mean, they're not going out and hurting anyone. So they're not bad people, but they're just kind of blah. And again, the issue is, do you really want weed to be your issue? Is that your be-all, end-all? Like, I understand when we're talking about freedom generally, so you should be able to smoke and do whatever you want with your own body. So from that perspective, I understand how it enters into the libertarian framework. But weed, really? Not like school choice or eminent domain or freedom to do business or, you know, the crazy national debt. Like, there are real issues and then there's weed. That's all. But anyway, it was it was very interesting being at Freedom Fest. And I guess it just proved the old axiom, which is that, we all think we're the happy medium. To me, libertarians seemed extreme. I, as a conservative, feel like I'm the happy medium, but that's just, that's how we all feel. It doesn't matter what area of life it is, whether it's politics or religion or food preferences or whatever. We all think we're the happy medium and everyone else is the extreme. The truth is probably that we're all extreme in some ways and we're all the perfect balance in other ways, which is why one of the best booths there is from this group called Braver Angels. Braver Angels is dedicated to bringing together people who think differently or who live different lives. Democrats and Republicans, European people and African people, young and old, all these different groups and just facilitating conversations, teaching people how to talk, teaching people how to have conversations that aren't about changing minds or about winning an argument, but just about educating each other more. We really, really need more of that. And I know everyone always calls for honest conversation. You know who gave a really honest conversation? Maj Touré. He's, he's the guy from Black Guns Matter. He gets up and he's talking about, about racism. And he talked about it. And no one in the audience was uncomfortable. No one in the audience felt like we were being attacked for being white. He proved that it's actually possible to be a black man talking to white people, European people, about race and about the problems facing Black people in America, and how some of those problems might even be systemic, but not to blame your audience. And in fact, to include your audience in the conversation and in the solution, and not by making them feel like they're terrible people, but by empowering them that they are good people and can be better by being involved in the solution. He was one of the best speakers, but he was great. And generally, all the speakers were really great. They were sharing ideas they weren't bad-mouthing too many people. I mean, it happens. It's politics. People do it. But generally speaking, people are just sharing ideas. I went around to different booths and I learned from different people who had ideas that were different from mine. Some were the same, some were different, and we just talked. Maybe because we all knew generally that we agreed. We had some unity. Our unity was we all agreed in freedom. 
We might differ a bit as to what that freedom looks like, but we all had some general principles and values that we knew we shared so we could go into conversations safely. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about unity, right? It's not that we all agree or we're all the same. It's that we just have to have these shared values so that we can enter into a conversation understanding and knowing that the person opposite the table from us isn't bad, isn't terrible, isn't evil. We're all coming from a similar place and we just have different ideas of maybe how to get to our goals. But if we know that we all share something basic, then we can feel safe in the conversation. And that's how it was. I felt totally safe there, which was amazing and unfortunately unusual. I felt like I could actually just share my beliefs and I didn't have to hide anything. I have to hide all the time and I didn't have to. And it was really, really wonderful. So do I have differences with the Libertarian Party as a whole? Yeah. But do we clearly have shared values? And is that what's more important? Yes, it is. Oh, and by the way, the Freedom Fest was in South Dakota this year. So I got to do a little bit touristy stuff. So I went to see the Badlands and Mount Rushmore, both of which I highly recommend. They were The Badlands were beautiful. Mount Rushmore was just as impressive as one expects Mount Rushmore to be. I mean, it's it's the president's head and they're giant and they're made out of stone. And also the area around is really beautiful. So I highly recommend going to South Dakota. So I will see you all next time. And until then, remember, always be a little kinder than necessary. Thank you for listening to E Pluribus Unum. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating and a review. And please share the podcast with anyone you think would benefit from some common sense and thoughtfulness. Follow me on Facebook and Instagram at E Pluribus Unum Podcast. You can also find me on Locals at E Pluribus Unum Podcast.locals.com. The intro and end music is Chopin's Etude, Opus 10, Number 1 in C Major, known as the Waterfall Etude.